Well, Thanksgiving is gone. Good Friday has come and gone. And we have officially entered the Christmas season. The reason I know this is because on any given day, I can turn on the TV and I can find a Christmas special. Every day, there's a Christmas special on some channel. And one of them that's on almost every year is the movie A Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol is a, is a movie based upon a novel that was written by Charles Dickens. It's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who was this greedy, miserly man who hated Christmas. Until one day, on Christmas Eve, he was visited by four ghosts, and those visits literally changed his life. Now, there have been 22 movies made about the Christmas Carol. One of them was The Muppet Christmas Carol. One of them was Mickey's Christmas Carol. The first one was in 1901. It was a silent movie. Never figured out those silent movies. The last one was in 2008. But there's been 22 movies made. Now in this movie, Ebenezer Scrooge has these dreams, these visions of these ghosts that visit him. And, and the first ghost that visits him is his former partner, Jacob Marley, who wanders the earth in chains because of his greed and his selfishness. And he warns Ebenezer Scrooge that if you don't change, you're going to be just like I am, only worse. Now the next ghost that appears to Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas Past. And this ghost takes Scrooge on a journey back to his past, revisiting, reliving the good and the bad. Now here's what I've discovered. Every one of us have ghosts in our past. Every one of us have memories, events, words that have been said, things that have been done that still have an effect on our lives, both good and bad. These things that have happened, these ghosts from our past have literally shaped our lives. For some of us, the ghosts are clearly seen. We remember every detail of every moment. For others of us, the ghost is there, but, but because it was so painful, we blocked it out of our mind. The hurt, the pain is so great that to protect ourselves, we don't even remember what happened, and yet... The effects are still there. And what I've discovered is that these experiences from these ghosts of our past keep us from experiencing the fullness of the joy that Jesus came so that we could experience. Now, as we begin the Christmas season this year, I want you to listen to part of the Christmas story again. It's found in Luke chapter 2, and, and Luke 2 is probably the most famous of the Christmas stories. But in Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. It says this. That night there were shepherds. Staying in the fields nearby. Guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the radiance of the Lord's glory. Surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid. He said I bring you good news. That will be great joy. To all people. Now don't miss. What that passage says, Jesus came so that all people can experience great joy. Not some people, but all people. And not just joy, but great 
joy, mega joy, overwhelming, overflowing, abundant joy. God sent Jesus into the world so that every single person could experience real joy. Now understand, there is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent upon what happens to us. We ask someone out or someone accepts our invitation to go out and and that makes us happy. We get the job that we've always dreamed of or we get the promotion that we've longed for and and that makes us happy. We, We open up the gift on Christmas morning and it's just what we wanted and it makes us happy. But joy is different from that. Joy comes from the inside. Joy originates in the heart. Joy is independent of the circumstances of life. That's why the Apostle Paul said, our heart aches, but we have joy. Did you get that? In the midst of heartache and despair, Paul said, we can still have joy. And joy only comes from God. David said it this way. He said, I will be filled with joy because of you. So listen, if you want joy, you're not going to find it under the tree. You're not going to find it in the person sitting across the table from you. The only place you're going to find joy is in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can give us true joy. But that leads me to a question. If Jesus came so that everyone can have joy, why are so many living joyless lives? Now, I'm not talking about those who have yet to receive the gospel, the good news. I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about followers of Jesus. Those who have been saved. Those whose lives have been changed through the power of the gospel. We have been forgiven. And yet many of us who are followers of Jesus, who have experienced his forgiveness, still aren't living lives with this fullness of joy. The joy that the Bible speaks of is absent. This mega joy that it speaks about in in Luke chapter 2. So why is that? I mean, if Jesus came so that we could have great joy, why are so many of us living joyless lives? If Jesus came so that we could have joy, why are so many of us living lives that are less than joyful like he wants us to experience? Well, I believe the reason is because of these ghosts. These things in our past that haven't been dealt with. These things in our past that we have yet to overcome. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. These these ghosts from our past that keep us from experiencing the fullness of joy That Jesus wants us to experience. And today, we're going to talk about sin. A sin that won't let go. A sin that that easily trips us up. A a sin that that easily entangles us. That, That sin that holds us back. You see, I'm not talking about all sins. I'm talking about that sin. Or those sins that are in your life, 
that you just can't seem to have victory over. Those sins that are keeping you from experiencing the life that God wants you to experience. So if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry about it. The verses will be on the screen. But I would encourage you to bring your Bible. Because if you want to grow in your relationship with God, you need to read it and you need to mark it up and you need to study it and you need to learn it. So Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 11, we've, we've been given this great hall of fame of faith. This hall of fame that is filled with men and women Men and women who have trusted God, who have followed God, who have been obedient to God, even when it meant losing their lives. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, we read these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now, and understand before we say anything else that you are not alone. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by this huge crowd of witnesses, you need to understand that you are not the first to face the problems, the pains, the temptations of life. There's a huge crowd of witnesses who have gone before us, and they have experienced the life of victory. But the author of Hebrews tells us that if you and I are going to experience the same victory that they experienced, then we must strip off every weight that's slowing us down. And then he says, especially the sin that easily trips us up. Did you get that? The sin that easily trips us up. God's Word says that there are sins in our lives that easily trip us up, that easily entangle us, that weigh us down, that that calls us to, to be defeated in the Christian life, that hold us back from experiencing everything that God wants us to experience. These sins won't let go. These sins are are strongholds in our lives. Years ago I, I took up farming. A better word would be gardening. I wasn't a farmer. I, I gardened. I was pastoring my first church, and the church building was here, and the house we were living in was here, and there was this piece of land in between the church building and our house. And I asked them, can I plant a garden there? And they said, sure. It was a farming community. And they were interested to see what I could do. I was ready. I was eager. I was going to be a farmer. And so I borrowed a tiller and I tilled the ground. I prepared the ground. I planted beans and cucumbers and watermelons. And and I planted all kinds of things. And after I prepared the ground and I planted the seed, I watered that ground. I was doing everything I knew to do to, to make those seeds sprout up so that I could eat the corn and the beans and the watermelon. I was ready. But as my garden started growing, I noticed that what seemed to be growing the most were these weeds. And it wasn't just any weed. It was nut grass. I wasn't a farmer. 
I didn't know about this evil thing called nut grass. And so I went out there and got on my knees and I started pulling that nut grass up and I'd pull up the grass and I'd pull up the grass and pull up the grass. And, and then the next week, it would reappear. It would be there again. And so I'd get out there and I'd pull it up and I'd pull it up and I'd pull it up and the next week it would be there again. And I discovered the reason was there was this nut there was this bulb on the bottom of that grass underneath the soil that if I didn't get that nut, that bulb up, the grass, the weed, would continue to grow. And so for me to remove the weed, I had to get the nut out from under the ground. And that's how it is when it comes to sin. All too often our sin is like that nut, that bulb that is under the ground. We sin, and as believers, we're convicted. You see, if you're a real believer, you don't want to sin. And if you're a real believer, when you sin, you feel guilt, and you feel conviction, and you feel shame, and you feel remorse, and, and so you confess your sin, don't you? And you promise God, God, I'm never going to do it again. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You do the exact same thing over again, right? And you feel terrible, you feel miserable. I mean, you feel wretched. And so what do you do? You confess it to God. You say, God, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this again. God, I want to be free from this. And, and so you confess it, and all of a sudden you feel better, but then the next week you're doing the same thing over and over again. And, and it seems like you are in this, this cycle that continues forever and ever and ever. And here's what happens to many of us, that happens once, it happens twice, it happens three times, it happens a half a dozen times, a dozen times. And before long, we just begin to feel like one of two things. Either I'm not really saved, or this is the way the Christian life is meant to live, be lived. I'm never going to have victory over sin until I get to be with Jesus in heaven. And until that day... It's going to be a constant up and down of falling to sin and confessing sin and falling to sin and confessing sin. You see, many of you have this idea that, that when you become a Christian, every sin that you have struggled with before you became a Christian, you will never struggle with again. I mean, once you get saved, once you've confessed those things to God, God has given you victory. And that happens sometimes. But more often than not, we get saved and we still struggle and we wonder what's wrong. Did I really get saved? Do I really love Jesus? Did I really trust Him? And I praise God for those stories of those drug addicts and those alcoholics and those porn addicts who, who fall on their face before Jesus and they get saved and they never struggle with drugs. They never struggle with alcohol. They never struggle with porn or whatever else it is again. And yet, more often than not, that's not the story. More often than not, a person gets saved they long to be set free from the power of sin, and yet they discover that they are still struggling with those same sins. You see, when I become a follower of Jesus, I am saved immediately from the penalty of sin. The power of the blood of Jesus saves us immediately from every sin in our life, 
past, present, and future. And we don't have to worry about our eternal destiny because we have been saved through the blood of Jesus. And yet the victory over the power of sin in our life is an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing battle that we face until the moment that we meet Jesus face to face. That's why we're told in this verse, verse 1, run with endurance the race that is before you. That word race is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word agon, which it means to fight, to have a conflict, struggle. It is the Greek word from which we get our word agony from. By the way, that proves that those of you who enjoy running are sick. <laughs> You're sick. You enjoy agony. Agony. You see, what God is saying is the fight to overcome sin is going to be tough. It's going to be a struggle. So we have to endure. We have to keep going. We can't give up. And then he tells us how we can do this. He, he tells us how we can run this race. How we can fight the fight in such a way that, that we can have victory. He tells us how we can have victory over these sins that just don't seem to want to let go in our life. And let me just say again, most of us, we have those. We have them. These sins that easily entangle. These sins that seem to trip us up over and over and over again. These sins that won't let go. And yet here in this chapter, chapter 12, we are told that even these sins that won't let go, we can have victory over them. But we've got to do what it says. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, we're given four things that, that need to take place for us to have victory over these sins that easily entangle, easily ensnare. Here's the first thing. We need to change our focus. And notice what he says in verse 2 and 3. He said, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Now notice how verse 2 begins. We do this. In other words, we have victory over these sins that won't let go. How? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. Now that phrase, keeping your eyes or fixing your eyes, implies that we are to look away from one thing and focus our attention on something else. It means looking away from everything in this world and focusing our attention solely and completely on Jesus Christ. That's what it means. To look away means that our attention is no longer going to be on the sin or on the things of this world, but our attention is going to be on Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, we are to think of all the hostility he endured. That word implies meditating, pondering, concentrating completely. In other words, we're to fix our attention on the cross and the price that Jesus paid on that cross. Now listen very carefully. We don't have victory over these besetting sins 
by concentrating on how to overcome the sins. That keeps the sin or the sins on our mind. We have victory by taking our eyes off of the sin and focusing our attention on Jesus. When the temptation comes, we look to Jesus who is the completer of our faith. You see, we don't overcome defeat by replaying the defeat in our mind over and over. We overcome by changing our focus on what, or in this case, the who that gives victory. And notice what it says about Jesus. It says he is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. That phrase, champion who initiates, is translated author in some translations. It means captain. It means chief. It means leader. When you put that phrase together, it is saying the one who brings us into the faith and the one who completes our faith. You, you see, the truth of the matter is there are some sins that your flesh will never be strong enough to give you victory over. There are things in your life that you can have victory on in your power, in your flesh. But these besetting sins, these sins that entangle, these sins that ensnare, these sins that won't let go, your flesh will never be strong enough to have victory over these things. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is not only the one who provides forgiveness for us. He is the one who produces the power within us so that we can have victory over that sin. I want you to look at me. The key to victory over sin is not trying harder. The key to victory over sin is not giving more. It's all about your focus. You get your eyes off of you, you get your eyes off of your sin, and you put your eyes on Jesus because he is the only one who can give you victory. Now, how do you do that? You do that by meditating on him, pondering on him. So, how do you do that? Well, I don't know all the ways, but I, I know you can't do that by, without reading his word. You can't do that without letting his word get into you. You see, as you read the Word, the Word is, is getting into you. When you meditate on the Word, the Word is getting out of you and changing you and making you a brand new person. And that's what you have to do. You have to take your focus off of this world, off of the sins that continue to cause your downfall and focus yourself totally and completely on Jesus. When you change your focus, you'll begin to experience victory. But that's not the end. Next, he says we need to submit to God's discipline. In verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And, and you, in, as you endure divine discipline, remember God is treating you as his own children. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, Shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers discipline us for a few years doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us 
so that we might share in his holiness. Now there's so much in these verses, so let's begin at the very beginning. God makes it clear that his discipline should encourage us, not discourage us. I am convinced that how we respond to God's discipline has a lot to say about where we are spiritually. And then he says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. Just as an earthly father disciplines his child, not because he hates them, but because he loves them and wants the best for them, the Bible makes it clear that our heavenly father disciplines us because he loves us and he wants us to share in his holiness. And just as an earthly father disciplines because we do something wrong, our heavenly father disciplines us because there is sin in our life. You see, discipline comes from God. And the purpose of discipline is to produce holiness in our life. It's, it's not to punish us, but it's to teach us. And if we submit to God's will and learn from God's discipline, then we can experience holiness and have victory over sin. By the way, this passage says that if we aren't disciplined when we sin, it means we're not a child of God. In other words, if I am a child of God, if I've been saved, if I've been born again, and I get into sin, God will discipline me. And if I'm not being disciplined, then the Bible says in chapter 12 that I am an illegitimate child. I am not his true child. And what does God's discipline look like? Well, to be honest, I'm I'm not completely sure because I think it looks different in different situations. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that there were some who were becoming sick because they were sinning against God. So sometimes discipline takes the form of sickness. Now the problem with that is there are some of you who are so holy that every time someone gets sick, you're going to go, well, I guess God's disciplined them. And sickness is just a part of life here on planet Earth, isn't it? It's a part of living in a fallen world. And so don't try to play Holy Spirit and figure out if someone's sickness is because of sin in their life. But God does that. Sometimes God disciplines us by bringing hardship into a person's life. They may lose a job. They may experience something else because of sin in their life. And again, you're not the Holy Spirit. And so it's not your job to determine whether the difficulties in their life are a result of their obedience to God, they're the result of living in a sinful world, or they're the result of God's discipline. That's between them and God. Sometimes God's discipline is simply the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in our life. But here's what I know. Whenever God's discipline comes into our life, He produces it, He brings it, so that we will change our focus from our sin to the Son and become holy because He is holy. And when discipline comes, by the way, there's only two alternatives. Either we're going to turn from our sin and turn to the Son, the S-O-N, or we're going to get bitter and angry at God and we're going to turn from God because of His discipline. I've seen both. I've seen Christ followers who were in sin and God disciplined, they got angry at God and they turned their back on God. I've seen others who were in sin and the loving Father disciplined them. They recognize it. They confess their sin, turn back to God, and 
they experience the fullness of the joy that comes from a relationship with God. So we change our focus, we submit to God's discipline, and then third, we take responsibility. In verse 11, it says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening, it's painful. But afterwards, there will be peaceful, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands, strengthen your weak knees, mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. And in verses 11 through 13, God is moving from what He will do. As we change our focus, He will work in our life and give us the power to have victory. As a loving Father, He will discipline us when we sin. He's moving from what He is going to do in this process to what we need to do. You see, there is a God's part and a man's part in this process of having victory over sin. Just as the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it also says, he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. There's a God's part and there's a man's part. Now notice what it says here. It says there is a harvest of right living. That's victory over sin. There is a harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now that word trained is the Greek word gymnazo, which is the word we get our word gym from. And so what this verse is saying is, we need to prepare ourselves if we want to have victory over sin by hitting the spiritual gym. And you say, what is the spiritual gym? Does that mean I need to come up here to the church and hit the weight room? Does that mean I need to go over to the ball field and run laps? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about you need to develop spiritual disciplines in your life. The Bible speaks about these disciplines that we develop in our life that on their own do not change us. But when those disciplines are connected with the Holy Spirit of God, the power of God, God uses those disciplines to produce a change in our life. For instance, prayer is a spiritual discipline. Studying God's Word is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Spiritual stewardship of your resources is a spiritual discipline. Witnessing, sharing your faith is a spiritual discipline. On their own, these things will never change your life. You can read your Bible every day and never be changed. You can pray every day and never be changed. You can, you can give 90% of your money and live on 10% of it and never be changed. On your own, those things don't change you. But when those things are connected to the power of God and a heart that has a desire for holiness, then God uses those things to change us. And so he says, take responsibility. Recognize your part. He says we need to strengthen our grip and our knees. We need to move from weakness to strength. And then finally, the fourth thing we need to do is we need to recognize that we don't fight alone. Listen to what it says in verse 14 and following. Work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no one... No, excuse me, no poisonous fruit of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. And hear what it says here. 
It says, look after each other. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. That's mutual accountability. We need to look after one another. That's living in relationship with one another. Now here's what I've discovered. We're much better at looking after others than we are having others look after us. Would you agree? I mean, most of us don't take kindly when someone comes up to us and said, hey, I want to talk to you about something that I see in your life. We, we don't like that. Do we? It's, it's tough to accept that, that accountability. At the same time, I've discovered that many of us are very good at dishing it out. Have you met people that it seems like the only time they communicate with you is when they've got something to point out that you're doing wrong? You met people like that? I mean, I have. I was at a funeral this, this past Friday in, in Greenville. And, um, and the person who was preaching said that he was a pastor and he said there, you know... You need to understand, pastors don't enjoy seeing everybody. <laughs> he said, there are some people that come down the hall, when they see them coming down the hall, if they have time, they're going to go in the other direction. Because they know that if they're going to say something, they're going to say something that is critical or correcting or something like that, instead of encouraging. And that's not talking about, you've got this responsibility to point out everybody's sins. I mean, some of you are real good at that. What this is saying is that we need to be in mutual, accountable groups where we are living in relationship with one another so that we're holding each other accountable. Now, I've got to tell you, the only place that's going to happen is in a small group environment like our life groups. That's where that happens. When you get into small groups of people that you're doing life with, that you begin to trust enough that you let them speak truth into your life and you're willing to let them speak truth into your life and you're speaking truth into their life. You see, you can't do this alone. You can't fight alone. You need other people. You need people who are there to pick you up when you fall down and dust you up and say you can make it. You need other people who get in your face and say, what in the world do you think you're doing? And then you need to be that person in people's lives at times, right? I mean, after all, we're a family, aren't we? And in your family, don't you do that with the people you love? Don't you let the people you love do that to you because they love you and you love them? And the author of Hebrews is telling us that if we want victory over these sins that won't let go, this is the only way to do it. For some of you, this is the missing element. You've refused to get into these groups where you're doing life with someone to the point that you're allowing them to talk truth into your life. And you're talking truth into other people's lives. So where are you? Well, probably in a group this size, there are some of you here who have never experienced joy from Jesus to begin with. When the Bible says that Jesus came so that all people could have good news, experience the good news of great joy, you're here and you're going, I haven't had it. I haven't experienced it. I don't know this joy that comes from the inside. 
I don't know this joy that isn't dependent upon what happens in my life. And, and I'm here to tell you the only way you're going to find it is through Jesus. You're not going to find it by getting the right gift, by getting the right person, by getting the right job. Those things are going to change. Those things are going to disappear. They're never going to provide ultimate happiness. The only way you're going to have joy, lasting joy, is through Jesus. Jesus came to give it. And if you're here and you know right now that you need joy that comes only from Him, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that joy in just a minute. But there are many of us here, I'm afraid, who are going through life without the fullness of joy. We've experienced joy, but because of that sin that holds on, that sin that easily trips us up, that sin that easily ensnares us, our life is a constant up and down and up and down and up and down, confessing, repenting, sinning, confessing, repenting, sinning, the same things over and over and over again. And yet Jesus came to set us free. And I'm here to tell you today, follower of Jesus, child of God, that you don't have to continue that cycle. He can give you victory, but you've got to change your focus. You've got to submit to the Father's discipline. You've got to take responsibility. You've got to recognize you can't do it alone. You need to get into a group of people who will hold you accountable that you can hold accountable. And if you do, I'm here to tell you, victory can be yours can be and so I want you to bow your head I want you to close your eyes with your head bowed with your eyes closed I want to talk to the first group for a moment if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to save you you've never humbled yourself before him recognizing that your best will never be good enough I want to encourage you right here and now to humble yourself before God, admit your need, and give your life to Jesus. You can pray this prayer right now. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I don't deserve it. I know I never will deserve it. But you offered it. And I need it. Please forgive me. I don't want to live in bondage anymore. Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you to change me. I want you to make me new. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. You lived a perfect life. You died on a cross. You rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. Today, I'm trusting you. Today, I'm turning it all over to you. Thank you for saving me. 